Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by MUBI, the online streaming cinema for your free 30-day trial. Go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Today's episode is also brought to you by our lovely Patreon supporters. To become a supporter yourself, go to patreon.com slash show. Ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode, a classic episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Michael Snydell. Hello. And Bill Graham. Woo! Yeah. And we are here today on this classic episode, not to review a new release in film, or in films, in theaters, but to do a classic movie. And today's classic movie, if you can guess from the music, Devil in a Blue Dress, the 1995 Denzel Washington starring neo-noir, written and directed by Carl Franklin. And we are super excited to talk about this movie and to uh, once again finally be recording some of these classic episodes that we <laughs> should have been doing once a month for almost a year. Our bad. Um, these episodes are brought to you by our Patreon subscribers who are giving us enough money for all of you out there in listener world to have earned classic reviews. So previously, last week, we did Unstoppable, and then we decided let's keep the Denzel train rolling, pun intended, and talk about Devil in a Blue Dress, one of his underseen, just real great 90s performances. As a spoiler for my opinion on this film. If you haven't listened to a classic episode before, you should know that there is no non-spoiler section. We go all in, baby. All up front. If you would like to become one of the people who we get to thank, thank you Patreon supporters, when we do these episodes, then you can go to patreon.com slash thefilmstageshow and become a patron for as little as $1 an episode. You will get access to our super cool Slack channel. You will also... Be entered in to win cool prizes. For instance, if you become a Patreon supporter and post on Patreon.com, then you will be entered in to win a Widow's Blu-ray. Widow's, the fantastically underappreciated crime drama. Highly accurate. Super accurate about Chicago <laughs> politics. Is that right, Michael? That's the one. Yeah, yeah. I, I gotta, I gotta vote next week, and they, all, all the choices are turds. So I'm very excited. I mean, so again, super <laughs> accurate. Widows <laughs> was just real accurate about that. This is, you know what? You got me there. <laughs> all right, awesome. Who is your ward alderman, Michael? Oh no, the most um, important man in the city, and you don't know his name. <laughs> <laughs> all right well while michael tries to figure out his ward alderman uh we should say yeah again go to patreon.com slash the film stage show and uh give us give us your money if you can please uh we love it and again it helps us to create more great content like this michael it's it's, it's tom tunney obviously of course <laughs> tom tunney of course how could we not know that anyway uh we are also brought to you by movie 
the online streaming cinema. Every day, Mubi introduces a brand new film, which you have 30 days to watch. And uh, so that means you always have a constantly rotating selection of 30 great films. We're talking classics. We're talking foreign films. We're talking underseen gems. So let's see what they've got going on. First of all, if you're a fan of Milos Forman, got 2006's Goya's Ghosts. Also, <laughs> Queen of Earth by Alex Ross Perry, whose new film apparently has a trailer dropping tomorrow and will be out. It already premiered at, I think, the New York Film Festival. Cannot wait. Um, the Oscars are this weekend. The Oscars are not giving nearly enough nominations to First Reformed. But if you love First Reformed like we did, check out Diary of a Country Priest by Robert Brisson. That is a movie that was a big influence on that film. There's a bunch of other great stuff. So go to movie.com slash film stage and you will be able to get a free 30-day trial of movie on us. Again, that is M-U-B-I dot com slash film stage. And that's it. We've gotten through all the front matter, I guess. Actually, I didn't say where we were on Twitter. So let's just do that. Find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show. Find us on Facebook, The Film Stage Show. Email us, podcast at filmstage.com. And of course, go to iTunes and give us a comment or rating. Now we can get into our feature review of Devil in a Blue Dress. Again, written and directed by Carl Franklin. Based on the book by Walter Mosley, this movie stars Denzel Washington as Easy Rollins, a factory worker who loses his job and happens into the seedy underbelly of Los Angeles when he is hired as a private detective trying to find a white woman who is known to hang out in the black areas of the city. Has anyone, had anyone seen this movie before we decided to talk about it? I started it last, last year and got 20 minutes in and had to stop for, for reasons that were unknown to me. But I, I mentioned that just so I can say that, like, I'd heard about this for a while. Carl Franklin is someone I liked uh, quite a bit. Uh, one false move in particular was something I finally got to last year. And uh, I would call that one of the best films of the 90s. And uh, Out of Time mm -hmm. uh, is actually filmed um, where my grandma lived in Florida. So I, I had heard about that for years. I, I think I saw it actually in theaters when it first came out because we knew that it uh, took place at Cortez, I believe, in in Florida, um, right by Anna Maria Island. So that's someone one I've heard of for years, but is also a, a damn good uh, thriller in its own, or I guess neo-noir in its own right. Yeah, those, uh, <clears throat> that's, a, that's um, not to go back to our serenity talk, but those like, tropical sun-drenched noirs like <laughs> wild things and uh out of time are just like sure. they're so nice it's uh <laughs> it's a little kind of sucks that serenity became what it became uh go listen to our serenity episode if you want to hear us lose our minds over the movie serenity uh but bill graham had you seen devil in a blue dress before we decided not. to watch it i had not had you I hadn't heard, heard about it before? <laughs> no, I had never heard of it. But oh, okay. I, I don't, I don't, I don't frequent that kind of area. Of, I mean, I guess this film. I, to be honest with you, I'm curious why we ended up doing it. Um, <laughs> uh, 
I'm not sure where like this is in like the pantheon of like neo noirs and stuff like that. So I'm I'm very curious like uh, what kind of reputation this film has outside of just like reading reading up on it a little bit and how like it didn't make very much money at all. Um, yeah. And so I'm just I'm just curious like what what this film's reputation is because I hadn't heard about it all that often. Um, I've heard of a number of films that I haven't seen and I'll freely admit to that. But uh, this one wasn't really on my radar, so. So this one was a bolt out of the blue for you. Mm, uh, I have no idea what that means, but yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to tell you that yes, it was. <laughs> I'm not, I don't have time to get into idioms. Um, so yeah, I had heard of devil in a blue dress. I, I really wanted to see it and just never got around to it. And um, so when, when Michael said, Oh, we should do devil in a blue dress. I was like, Oh shit. Yeah. Cause I need to see that movie. And this is a perfect opportunity to like justify it to myself. And um, there's a podcast called uh, Denzel Washington is the best actor of all time, period, uh, hosted by, I believe, James Avery and W. Kamau Bell. And they had like three separate episodes on Devil in a Blue Dress. This is, um, you know, but you, you ask, like, how is this an important movie or why is this an important movie? Like, why did we land on it? And like, it is upfront kind of like difficult to say like i don't know that i could have pitched it before seeing it it just seemed like one of those things that i ought to have seen not just because as we all know like noir is one of my like three top genres but because this movie you know with denzel washington with carl franklin um pulling from the source material it does is is weirdly important without having unfortunately had that much of an impact mm -hmm. which is an enigmatic way of beginning to talk about this film before we do let's just uh, go around the horn did everyone like this because i fucking loved it mike you go first I, I did. I, I didn't. I didn't love it as much as I was expecting to, given how much I've liked Carl Franklin's films in the past. But I did uh, kind of how you enigmatically just described it was uh, a good way to talk about how I I left this film. Like there is something here um, that just never became something larger. There's some really interesting, like uh, the ways that this thing's decides to resolve some situations off screen the way that this film ends on kind of this really um kind of conflicted but like a uh, tidy happy ending in the way of very old like uh even like uh, it reminded me for instance of fritz lang's uh hangman must die which has a, a a happy ending that barely feels like a happy ending. And that kind of reminded me of this. So again, like it's, it has all of those classic elements of noir. Uh, Denzel's uh, performance is fantastic. I am almost thinking that I could, if I was, you know, no one else besides Denzel can pull up a wife beater. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, but like, he really, really pulls it off just as much as he does a suit. So, <laughs> so power to him. Uh, so the, he looks the good, good in in every moment of this movie. Yes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
even if there are pit stains that we're not seeing or anything, he, uh, I, I can't, I can't like those old like forties sort of like oversized button down shirts that like you wear over a wife beater and they're like slightly unbuttoned and you can tell they're not like tailored on the shoulders. Like he looks great in those. <laughs> yeah. So, so again, like it is in some ways a very familiar noir. Like it, at times it feels like Chinatown. At times it feels like any number of kind of classic noirs. Um, but it, it, again, it also just feels much smarter about when it comes to race, when, when it comes to the, the the weird like stratas that these people live in. And like maybe this is just my blind spots, but I have to say I don't feel like I've seen this version of like black L.A., like like seeing Denzel being in the 40s in this very specific community that just feels so meticulous but also has black people at the forefront and the places that we're going feels so rich and kind of unseen uh, in the majority of things I've seen. Like, you know, it's not that there weren't uh, black noir detectives, you know, whether you want to go to black exploitation, whether you want to go to Sidney Poitier's, Poitier's uh, films, who's, it's his birthday today. Happy birthday to him. Um, they call him Mr. Tibbs. Tibbs. <laughs> I actually just watched that the other weekend. So again, it, it very much comes in a, a, lineage, uh, a lineage. Wow, I can't talk today. A lineage, and there are some familiar things, but there was nonetheless so much in here uh, that feels so much elevated above your average noir. And it's just got a hell of a Don Cheadle performance (laughs) with the insane uh, uh, mouse, like, who's just a fascinating character and, like, a kind of... uh, psychopath played as an ally (laughs) he's your he's your shitty best friend (laughs) yeah no and and there's a great conversation about that yeah there's there's just a lot going on here and i found it messy but also uh really engaging and seductive and fascinating all right bill graham well that was a lot to follow up on um i thought this film didn't quite work as well as I wanted it to. Um, I think it's beautifully shot. I think everything going on here is, is wonderful. Uh, I feel like I have to echo a lot of, uh, I was just kind of reading a brief snippet of um, Ebert's review and I I can't help, but like just kind of echo a lot of his sentiments. Um, But Overall, I feel like this is this is a, some real like star making turns. Um, whether it's Sizemore, who I really find just like super sleazy, and um, you know Don Cheadle is just wonderful every time he comes on screen. Um, and it's funny because he's kind of billed as this character that that you're interested in seeing. And, and by the time he makes his presence known, it's uh, <laughs> it's definitely with like a bang. So uh, hats off to him um, and his two fake teeth. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like 
so often these noir films get so tied up in in all of the the mystery of it that this film's mystery doesn't quite engage as as I much as much as I would like but otherwise uh the whole atmosphere and mood and everything like that is is beautiful and and i really like it and yeah like michael was mentioning being able to see this kind of side of la at this time is really interesting as well so yeah i am i'm gonna just say it i'm probably the like noir aficionado amongst Mm -hmm. all of us so i go into a movie like this expecting like you know I, i read roger ebert's review bill so i understand where you're coming from, uh, Michael, before we started recording, you also mentioned a, uh, AV club retrospective that was written about this, which I also read. And so I know that there are tropes of the noir, from, uh, Jesse Hassinger. I, yes. sorry, I just want to mention, mention the name. And so I know there are tropes of the noir genre that are going to keep some people on the outside and will be like points of contention. Um, some of those things are stuff that we love, like uh, the voiceover, the the wonderful analogies that are thrown around, the the way that your character is basically almost completely ineffectual and besides the point. And as a protagonist, mm-hmm. that can be frustrating yeah. to both experience and watch. And then the fact that like great big swaths of action will happen off screen or, you know, outside of their perspective. And since we literally never leave their perspective, we're only getting things, you know, that are either given to us in voiceover or told to them, or as happens in this movie told to them, but explained to us in voiceover. And I take all those things as tropes of the genre. And so one of the things that I appreciated most about this movie Um, And I say this as someone who hasn't read the books, so I don't know how those go. Um, And for anyone who didn't know, Devil in a Blue Dress uh, is the first in a series of presently 14 books by Walter Mosley that follow Easy Rollins. And um, they begin in the 40s and uh, apparently are now up into the 60s, the 1960s. So I'm, I'm looking forward to starting to dive into those again as someone who loves noir. But um, the last one was a uh, was a few years ago too. So yes, it's not like uh, charcoal writing. Yes, twenty sixteen. Um, and I don't know. I don't know if he's like got plans to keep going. The great thing about noir detective novels is you don't like they very rarely need to like. It's not a Game of Thrones thing, you know. Like sometimes I read almost every novel and a couple of short stories that Raymond Chandler did. Uh, with his detective, Philip Marlowe, who's probably my favorite noir detective. And there's like no crossover. There's no <laughs> uh, sense of serialness to it. You know, mm-hmm. he, he he starts the books off shiny and clean and probably drunk. Ends it just blackened and bloodied and beaten. But he figured everything out. And then the next novel, he's like once again clean shaven and doesn't have any like bruises. And, like, that's mm-hmm. it. Like, it just completely resets in, like, the most beautiful and wonderful of ways. And so, yeah, things like that I'm used to. And what I loved about this movie was how closely it hewed to those and how much, like, if you've ever read one of these books, because they were written of the time period, 
um, or at least close to it, and usually take place as this movie does, like post-war, like very closely post-war. Um, once, you know, and this is a, a cliche, once American innocence had been tarnished a bit by the Second World War, and so you were allowed to be a little more cynical and a little more like angry and hateful. A lot of those books, you know, treat their African-American characters, I won't say terribly, but definitely not well. <laughs> and so it is interesting in this movie just to see the way that everything is sort of inverted. And one of the things in my, in my notes that I wrote is that this is a film that is almost remarkable for how much it tries to be unremarkable. Um hmm. Easy Rollins is a character who's motivated not by like the death of his wife or some weird sense of like duty or like a tragedy that happened while he was overseas while he was fighting in World War II. He's motivated because he wants to keep his house. Uh-huh. Like his mortgage. He's, he's got a mortgage and he needs to yeah. pay it. And, you know, most of the times in, in a movie like this, it'd be like, you know, it'd been two years to the like day that my wife had died and like, you know, the killer was still out there. But sure. on his his ride home is like, I wanted to go to my house. I loved riding, like pulling up into my house. It felt nice to own something. And sure. that is such a low stakes motivation for taking a very dangerous job. And it's up to Denzel Washington and up to the subtext of the movie to inform you of why it's so important. It doesn't become a sticking point, but it is like he is a black American who fought in World War II who is still facing discrimination. But like, sure. God damn it, he has like carved out some of that middle class life that he fought for and was promised. And he's going to hold on to it. And I, I do love that he he lives in a neighborhood with tree-lined streets and families, you know, he's not one of these guys who like lives in the small closet of his detective practice. Like this is a man who, whenever he's not out there getting beat up by the cops or the hired goons is like planting trees in his yard. Mm -hmm. And so there's this really beautiful, very rare for the genre juxtaposition of like easy Rollins man who just wants to have his house and plant his trees. Also, uh, there's like three bodies that he has to figure out what to do with and who <laughs> killed them. And there's a missing woman and a guy running for mayor. Like, it's it's so cool. As a fan of this genre, watching this was like, just like, awesome. Just like, it's like, if you've only ever, I don't know, if you've only ever like drank Coca-Cola and then someone's like, well, if you like soda, like, how about you try some Sprite? And you're like, I didn't even know you could do this. Mm-hmm. to fizzy mm-hmm. carbonated beverages like this is fucking incredible <laughs> wait until you have whiskey <laughs> i know <laughs> then you put some whiskey in it and you're like oh we're back in marlowe territory now baby <laughs> but yeah i like i have a whole page of notes of really interesting stuff that i, I like wanna I wanna get into um but you know before doing that i'll just say like this movie is beautiful it's shot by talk fujimoto who uh, he did um, Signs of the Lambs. Lambs. Uh, he also did Signs, Sixth Sense. Mm. What's happening? <laughs> Badlands, dude. <laughs> yeah. I was going for, for more, I was going to say contemporaneous stuff, but then I was like, eh, the M. Night Shyamalan ones aren't that contemporaneous. But he's basically a legend, and he does so goddamn well in this movie. Mm-hmm. And this movie is... 
Oh, go ahead. A lot of Dem films, which, which is very interesting that he's one of the producers as well on this. Because yeah. I, I would say that this certainly has his sense of uh, it, just like a, a real perceptive awareness that goes beyond what's written on the, you know, I, I'm sorry, what, what's it in, written on the page? Like, like there's just a sense, that even in the conversations in this, and I think you were, you were, I think we're about to get into this a little bit, but just even the side characters in this, you know, they speak with that certain, you know, recognizable patter mm-hmm. and, and, you know, uh, with their expressions. But they're also, it, it's, you can understand how easy knows all these people, which I think is really interesting. And even if it's not like he necessarily likes these people, he's, they're all people who are in his orbit who he has like just mutual like <laughs> like just a, a mutual understanding and tolerance for and and like i think that also feels really unique and i guess that feeds back into what you're saying about you know the the philip marlowe's of the world who are just like born loners it's yeah. just that's that's not really easy <laughs> <laughs> No, Easy Easy Rollins is a man, you know, he 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 is like a social creature and I don't I don't want to dominate this too much. Clearly I have a lot to say. Um but like he's he's a very human character in a way that many of these, you know, cynical private uh private eyes these uh Seamuses aren't. Mm-hmm. which we can get into phil graham you haven't spoken in a bit any uh, reactions to anything that we've uh we've said or any feelings about i guess like the the more plot aesthetic vision of the movie before we like dive into themes no i, I think i think what you're kind of keying in on is is pretty interesting you know uh me not having been as familiar with kind of the rhythms of the genre i don't understand when it's quite broken here but certainly as you kind of mention it and i think back and i reflect back on some of the noirs that i've i've seen and either read um you know i think that's that's an interesting take and it's certainly something that they're kind of playing with um i i have some questions about this film that i want to get into later um, but, uh, I, I'll just leave this as a, as a parting gift. Uh, why that motherfucker always trying to steal trees? What's, <laughs> what's going on I, there? I, um, I'm so happy you asked that. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I don't go, I don't understand why that's like a, I mean, I, I really hope that that's a running theme in all of those books. Um, that 20 would years great. down the road, he's still after the trees. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just, I, I'm real <laughs> and it, 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 it would be fine if it was like one, like little small bit, but it keeps happening over and over <laughs> to the point where I was like, there, like either there's gotta be some truth to this or he just wanted to put this character or this actor in the film and didn't know how and decided to have him in like five different scenes and like at at certain points he's like important and at other points he's just a nuisance and i'm just like i don't like i wish he was like an ice cream man or something <laughs> instead of like just chopping down trees like it seems like so mean and i don't know what you get from chopping down trees it seems it, like he it, thinks he's being helpful yeah well he's like he's like 
all Mr. Mr. Easy. I'll, I'll, I'll take that tree down for you. I'll, you know, I'll do it. And it's just like, and Easy's time, like, don't touch my trees. Like, yeah, what's wrong with like, you? What is, what is going on here? A, and A, or, or a B, the other thing is, how does he not have more trees than, like, what <laughs> he apparently, like, has? Because all you got to do is start sawing on a tree late at night, and you got well, yourself a tree, I think. He's, he's not trying to be sneaky about it. Like, he's, I know. It's the middle of the day. <laughs> there are people everywhere. <laughs> I thought he was trying like to scavenge it. Time. I thought he was trying to scavenge it for lumber, like in the same way that, you know, uh, homeless people, you know, they collect. Well, now they have collect bottles. Uh, yeah. yeah. Is that right? Sorry. Yes. Collect bottles yes. or cans. Or like cans. scrap copper and stuff like that. But that's the, like we see him in the act of cutting down a neighbor's tree and it's like a sapling. Like it's not. Sure. It's I don't know what yeah. he, I don't think like a lumber yeah, yard or anyone is... would even take that. Now, I will say I went looking for. An answer to this um, tree cutting guy? <laughs> okay. I was able okay. so on episode twelve of Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time, period. Um, they have a uh, Catherine P. McMurphy and they say in the episode description, uh, they talk about Denzel passing the ball to Don Cheadle, trying to figure out the deal with the guy cutting up all the trees in the movie and get into the sexiest Denzel moment in film history. <laughs> However, I could not play this episode. I I don't know if like the the feed is down or what, but like I really wanted to have an answer. And I tr- like you know because I was like maybe that's like a real specific 1940s like LA thing. Like maybe there were people who were like you know all these stupid trees using up the water. I'm like, but he doesn't seem to give a shit about the lawn. Like so, what the hell is happening? And um, I sorry, I just don't have an answer for you. <laughs> That was really anticlimactic. <laughs> I just wanted to let you know I tried. Last last episode I was able to give you the full actual story of the crazy eights that inspired uh Unstoppable. <laughs> this time I was not able to go above and beyond. Damn. Damn, well, damn, damn. I know I feel I, bad I, about in, that. In terms of the movie though, I I love that I Bill already mentioned it, but like he gets one time where he's at least trying to be helpful. <laughs> and it's when someone tries to take a swing at him. Yeah. I just, I love that that is in it, that that character has been established enough that that has just like a weirdness added to right, it. Right. Cause he's trying to tell easy that there's a guy with a knife that's coming for yeah. him. And easy's <laughs> like, I don't want to hear about it. I just want to go inside and get some food. And then a man with a knife lunges at him. Yeah. Well, speaking yeah. of like, speaking of tropes, I mean, like, it's it's a trope that it happens to Marlowe all the time that people break into his apartments. So, yeah, like, there is there is a very different feeling to it being a house, like even just in terms of space, just the way that he picks up, a you know, the chair, e- even in that exact scene with mm-hmm. uh, Franklin. I think it's got to it's got to be said that like the, the the term breaking into a home at this point in time is also a a, a, a loose definition of that of that word because uh, I I don't think there's a whole lot of breaking it's more of uh, <laughs> open the door and you just go in you, you know? know there was a time but, and, and, in America where you know, could leave your doors unlocked <laughs> and, and 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 that is true well, like I never see I never see him lock his car or do anything like that and it's it's just one of those things but I do find it 
kind of hilarious when he like walks in and there's people in his house and he's like, <laughs> what are you doing in my house? And I, I just wanted one of them to be like, well, it was unlocked. <laughs> yeah. I <don't> know. <laughs> like, it wasn't that hard to get in here. <laughs> and I'll, I'll echo something that Michael had said. It, it's um, and it, again, it might just be, and I think that this is one of the things that's most interesting and important about this movie. It may just be the way that like, life has has given me all this art that reflects a certain type of person but not these types of people like i can't remember the last time that i saw a film that takes place in like a segregated you know pre-civil rights america wherein like the the black characters are living like a truly like middle class lifestyle like he's in Mm -hmm. he's in a nice neighborhood that is completely populated by african-americans and he he owns his house like and yes they like talk about like redlining or like the precursor to it and they talk about like housing troubles that would eventually like turn a lot of these places bad i mean like what was the 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 rat film which uh we we discussed on this mm-hmm. podcast yes. talked yeah. about oh, redlining and yeah mm-hmm. and um and it talked about how like all those things like you know black people were only allowed to live here and these are the places that were most neglected and these are the places that like got treated like shit and like that's partially what's going on like that's the problem like that. of urban yeah. america and so it was super weird and like awesome to see this movie that takes place so much in this like nice area and so it's not like he's a drug dealer, a gangbanger who like is, is pulled into this, this sure. like, life of being a private detective. Like he is like a regular guy, you know, when he was talking about like buying the house and owning the house, I was like, yeah, man. Like, I remember the first time I like left my house that I had bought, went to work and then came home and parked in front of it. And I was just like, <laughs> this is my house. Mm-hmm. Like if I want to fucking smash those windows out, I can do it. Like if I want to paint the whole thing weird, I'd have to check the homeowners association, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I can do it. Like, <laughs> and there's a good level of like stability and feeling like you've made it that comes with that. And I think sure. it's interesting that in a lot of these, again, these detective novels now, like nowhere that the detective goes is ever particularly nice. But usually when he's he's hanging out with black characters, it's it is like it's a jazz club. Mm-hmm. Sure. Or, you know, there's actually a really interesting I don't want to call it progressive because I'm certain because I haven't read the books in a while that like all goodwill would immediately be undone like in the next chapter. But Philip Marlowe has this way of like really empathizing with a lot of the service members in society. So mm-hmm. like He'll slip like a $5 bill to like a Mexican parking attendant and be like, you know, did you see like an incredibly rich white man who sucks and like looks like he probably killed a girl? And the Mexican parking attendant will be like, oh, yeah, you're talking to like Mr. Avery. It's just like, <laughs> but like in this movie, like home base, like the good place that he's like trying to keep up, like is his home. And like, like you said, Michael, like Philip Marlowe, I mean, like, there's one book where I think he has a house, but it's like he's renting it from a friend who's out of town. Was <laughs> Usually he's not living a suburban lifestyle and planting trees. And when he goes to like a jazz club or a speakeasy, that's where he finds all the black characters. And then, you know, he'll go to like, you know, 
a, a fucking like Tijuana rat hole and find a bunch of other white characters. So like I said, everyone's pretty shitty and the rich people are the worst of all. But seeing like a fully fleshed out African-American society in this way is like revolutionary. And it feels like it is even today because they're not like pitied in the movie, you know, like we've, it's we've kind of, it's kind of interesting too. And I could see how some people would say it's, it's a flaw. And I think it is interesting, Brian, that we're both coming at this as a deconstruction while Brian or while Bill find it, found it a little unsatisfying. Cause I think there are some odd choices in here that I found really invigorating in terms of like, you know, when you think about Coretta and Dupree, like the first time he goes to meet them, you know, that's a scene that, you know, all right, what well, we're talking about Philip Marlowe. So in that type of movie, uh, you know, in Long Goodbye or uh, – uh, sorry, Maltese Falcon or something along th- those lines. Like that would be a scene that would be real quick. He'd get his information and then he'd go. And that's not what this is. Like he knows Coretta and Dupree. He hangs mm-hmm. out there and he's trying to find out information about Daphne. But he's also just like having a good time and they're reminiscing. And, you know, it, then it's it's, you know, arguably uh, – um, it's making room for what's going to happen the next day, but it's it's something that you really don't have to spend that much time there. And then later, I mean, we were already talking about how this obfuscates or, or outright doesn't show things on screen. Like there's a number of developments that happen, particularly late in this film, that like just kind of jumble together intentionally. Like, you know, we're in spoilers. Like I can say the – the um, the secret of Daphne, as well mm-hmm. as the secret of Terrell, you find those out very close to each other. <laughs> yeah. Like, it doesn't give you much breathing room for either. And I think that's very intentional, but I also feel – I was looking at a few reviews from the time. Uh, they were talking about how uh, unfulfilling they found. But I think it does go back to what we were saying about the, um, the ultimately uh, – ultimately like fruitless detective like the the entirely unsatisfying conclusions that come in things like chinatown or well pretty much every noir (laughs) noir satisfying conclusion but but like that is rarely it's rarely ever even presented in a way uh that also seems to not even care about those pieces it's it like i it feels weird because I think I, I, on one hand what I'm saying could very much be described as a flaw, but it also feels like a stylistic thing to me that says a lot more about the characters and the race. Like even this is a this is the last bizarre thing I'll say. In the climax, I found the way that that handled Joppy's death so interesting. Mm-hmm. Like that is emphasized more than almost anything with Daphne. <laughs> And it's like it's kind of weird and, and like vaguely sexist what happens there, but like also easy nose Joppy. Yeah. Like it so like on one on one hand it feels weird, but it also feels really moving that there is more time spent with that conversation between Mouse and Easy than literally saving Daphne. Did did you guys get that sense? 
Well, I mean, certainly for for easy, that's that's a huge blow. Um, you know, as much as he was probably mad at at Joppy, um, I think that kind of really settles in like his whole relationship with with uh, Mouse and everything around that. You know, um, I think it's interesting because he he just doesn't have that much time with Daphne. Of course, he's trying to rescue her, mm. but he, she is more of a job in a lot of ways because she's she's answers. She's answers to the question of why did uh, you know one of my friends get killed? Why is everything getting so mixed up and so confused? Why the hell did I end? end up in this position where like the guy that I thought I was working for had no idea who I even was and why I was asking about you and all of the, all of these questions, right? She's, she's the answer to the mystery Mm -hmm. without her. A lot of this is just what the hell is going on. Um, even, even though he still got the pictures and still has half of the puzzle, I think, you know, that final kind of piece is, is for her and Joppy is just, he's a he's a bystander in a lot of ways and so i think that's why it's so affecting um because he's he's almost mixed up in this against his will in a way that is like he he was trying to help a friend and so the way he went about it seems like well maybe maybe you shouldn't have done it the way that you did um i can't remember did joppy end up he didn't end up killing, or he did end up killing uh, his friend, didn't he? You uh, mean mouse? Mouse killed Joppy, You're saying? No, no, no. Uh, let me let me look up some names. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, Joppy killed another? Coretta. Yes, Joppy yes. killed Coretta. But then Richard McGee was was he killed by the uh, bouncer who they go see? No, no. Okay. Um, I can't remember who who ended up killing uh, that that guy, that character, but um, yeah, it, it, we find out that Coretta was killed by by Joppy, and I I think it was just he wanted to get the information out of her in some in some fashion. I, I, sure, I mean a lot of that is kind of rushed. I was like, whoa, Joppy, like <laughs> Jesus, man. Um, when they kind of reveal that. Um, and you don't get a whole lot of explanation. I don't remember, or at least not n- nothing that landed and impacted and stayed with me. So, um, but I mean, I, even I think still, that's fair. I think, I think there's a lot going on there with Joppy. Um, you know, I mean, the film opens with him in Joppy's bar looking, looking for work, you know? Sure. So <clears throat> just because we had to have that whole discussion of like, you know, who killed this person? Like, are we sure what happened? So mm. this is like famous amongst, uh, noir films. And <laughs> so the big sleep, uh, one of Raymond Chandler's novels with Philip Marlowe got turned into a movie directed by Howard Hawks. Um, <laughs> I'm going to read from the Wikipedia. Uh, as might be expected, all this cannibalizing, especially in a time when cutting and pasting was done and cutting and pa- with cutting and pasting paper, speaking to how they literally made like the scripts of some of these movies by like going to the book and just cutting lines out. 
sometimes produced a plot with a few loose ends. The famously unanswered question in The Big Sleep is who killed the chauffeur? When Howard Hawks filmed the novel, his writing team was perplexed by that question, in response to which Chandler, Chandler who wrote the book, replied that he had no idea. <laughs> oh my god, that's so perfect. <laughs> this exemplifies the difference between Chandler's style of crime fiction and that of previous authors. To Chandler, plot was less important than atmosphere and characterization. So, like, yep. he, he would sometimes, like, you know, you'd get that scene where, like, Philip Marlowe would stand with like the dame with the gun on one end and like the slide gangster at the other. And he would be standing between them drinking a whiskey sour, smoking a cigarette and going, you know, I had it all wrapped up until I remembered the one thing. And then like one of them will shout, well, that's because I did this. And he's like, all right, perfect. And then like the girl will kill the gangster. And then he'll be like, darling, you're going to jail. <laughs> like he really didn't care. And it's, it's totally fine. Like doesn't matter. Like he just needs another body to propel the case forward. So I'm just I'm just so excited that I get to talk about noir because noir is like my favorite <laughs> fucking genre because of stuff like that, because it's primarily about the way you feel and what it says about society more than the plot. And so like in that way, I love that like easy while well, he has like a small amount of concern for uh, Daphne. He doesn't really like there's just a whole part of him. It's like, sure. you're not my people. Like I was hired to find you and I wanted to and I thought I did and it was over. And then like my friend died. And um, and now I've got to figure that out. Now I got to know why. Like now I have to understand. Also, these people are still, you know, going to pay me a bunch of money if I do it. But primarily, I just need to understand why this is all happening. And it's like he's not like a journalist who's like my god this goes all the way to the top like he finds the pictures of the the mayoral candidate um terrell like with children Mm -hmm. which is again like one of those big deep dark things and like it doesn't like it, it affects him clearly like he still has like a level of morality but like that's not his most important thing He's like, this is, like, important enough to kill over, like, my friends, like, the people I know. And it's, um, yeah, it's one of those things where, like, oftentimes the detective in these things is like, I understand that I've stumbled upon, like, a plot to kill the president. I was just supposed to find a girl, and then you killed my best friend. And so I could give a shit. Like, I just need Mm -hmm. to know who killed my friend and why. And if I happen to topple this whole conspiracy while I'm doing it, more so the better. And um, not only that, but I think, and this will this this connects into kind of how this film was received, and and the kind of what if scenario that rises rises up around it. That's the type of thing that would lead, I think, in the future installments to Easy having to deal with his friend Mouse, um, sure. played by Don Cheadle, with a kind of gleeful manic sociopathic energy. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, because mm-hmm. Easy tells him, like, tie him up and put him in the trunk and then come and help me. And <laughs> Mouse just kills him. And Easy's like, why would you do that? Like, I told you not to. And he's like, no, you told me not to, like, take care of him. So I, or, like, not to hurt him. Like, not, to shoot, you, not to shoot him. So, so I didn't yeah. shoot him. I, I, I choked him. It's like, yeah. Holy shit, Mouse. He's like, well, look, I wasn't about to waste all that time putting him in the trunk and I got to come and help you and you're alive. And we got the girl and now we can get the money. 
And then I think he literally says, like, if you didn't want him dead, why'd you live him with me? Is he? Yeah. That final and, shootout, too, has a great, like, perfunctory quality. Like, it's shot well, but oh, it, yeah. it's it's a great, like, it's not a shootout at all. Like, it's it's sort of a turkey of a bloodbath. Shoot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's so good. I like I, I love that. And again, you know, you come to a hard-boiled detective novel, not so much for the action as for the quips and the twists and turns. And again, as as Chandler, you know, obviously believed the atmosphere. And this movie's got, like, atmosphere to spare. It's, you know, when he walks into that room and sees her for the first time, like, that's exactly how you want to be introduced to a femme fatale in one of these movies. And I think um, what's interesting to me is, like, this is, I think it's fair to say, like, a black film. It's it's written and directed by a black man. It's starring Denzel Washington. It takes place in, like, this, it, literally the, Watt, the reason in the Easy... Watts community. <laughs> yeah, like, it takes place in Watts. Literally the reason that Easy is is hired is because this, you know, passing for white woman spends a lot of time in, in black places, and they just need someone who can move in there undetected. And mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting that this movie has so much, like, Chinatown in it. Mm-hmm. It has so much of that classic old school Hollywood and it uses that as a way to like underline the social inadequacies and, and like cruelty that these people faced back then. It's, um, but I think, it's, it's but super I think even compared to Chinatown though, it, you know, it's the main character here has a more tangled, uh, social perspective mm-hmm. than, uh, than, uh, I can't remember Nicholson's character. Gettys. Nicholson. I I'm sorry. I think his name is Jake Giddies. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Then, then Jake. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I, I think you're right though. It, it, that the race aspect is the thing that, you know, ultimately you don't want to stigmatize or not stigmatize, but you know, try to say that that's only reason this film is known. But I, I think that the way that race is entwined in this so much, I, I mean, you've, you've already mentioned I'm still kind of trying to grapple with what to do with uh, Jennifer Beale's character I, and the fact that her, you know, um, being half black and that that is absolutely a character thing. But it ultimately it ultimately doesn't necessarily matter. But as you're saying, it also is essential because it's the people she knew it has to do with the assumptions the assumption was that uh frank green was her um that she was a mistress to him mm-hmm. that like like all of these things are related to race and therefore like it's almost like the movie is asking easy to say um is this racial line important to you knowing this and and instead what he's instead saying is no it's my friends who matter to me like like it Mm -hmm. is fascinating in the ways that like it keeps presenting these different different issues that are racial in nature but not but not essential i mean even think about the first scene in the movie where he's being laid off and he says um oh shoot I don't have exact his exact language, but it's something along the lines of like he calls him uh, Bud or, or something kind of like fella. very yeah fella yeah thank you Bill yeah like he calls him fella and and it's not necessarily racially coded but it is 
it is nonetheless like a respect thing. It, it is mm-hmm. a, a thing that can only come from living in that time and being that person. And just as he owns a house, when he gets in the car with two um, you know, white police officers, which by the way, I love the fact that there is dried blood in the interrogation in room. In the interrogation room already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I noticed that. Yeah. Um, like it's those, it's those things that like, he seems to be the top of the food chain, but once he's involved with these other people, it seems like it could have this like very, okay. Token feel to it. Like like a Mm -hmm. sense that this needs to be a racial detective story. And I understand I'm getting into like dangerous territory. I just, uh, I, I can't help but think about the ways that this like, seems to be very aware and perceptive about this, but also like when it comes to moral issues for it to not actually matter. Right. I, um, I wrote, I wrote something similar in my notes that, um, easy and Denzel's playing of him. He's like kind of a, he's kind of like a rare character in, in like our cinematic landscape. Um, especially as we wrestle with things like diversity and representation in film, you get into these aspects presently of like tokenism um, or like martyrdom. And, yes. you know, you, so it's like, <laughs> I, I can't remember. I was just listening to a podcast and uh, I don't want to misrepresent which podcast said it. Anyway, I'm sorry. I don't remember which podcast I was listening to. These people were saying like, you know, they'll be in script meetings and someone will say like, oh, so we've got this drug dealer character. Yeah, we can't make that a black person. And it's like, okay, that's like, that's, that's wrong though. Like if if you don't think the character is good enough to support that, uh, then maybe you need to write that character better. Like you can't like, for instance, half Nelson, which is a movie that very few people will remember as I say it. Um, that's the Ryan Gosling one, right? Yes. Yes, as it a is. Teacher. Yes. Yeah. He's a teacher. He's addicted to crack. And he's um, trying to help a a student of his kind of like avoid trouble, um, even yeah. as he's struggling with his own crack addiction. And there is a character in there played by Anthony Mackie, who is a drug dealer. And like, it's fine because he's a really good character. Like, he's a, he's an incredibly well-written, well-rounded character that you don't look at him and go like, oh, right, he's a... You know, he's a black, so he's a drug dealer. It's like, no, he's black, and so he's a person, and that person has decided to be a drug dealer. And this movie lets Denzel Washington be a no. very <laughs> flawed character. Sure. <laughs> he um it's funny because he he he's Denzel Washington. Like he has this kind of cool to him. He's got this reserve. And you know, he, he puts up like resistance of sleeping with another man's woman, but then they cut to that scene <laughs> and he is as any other man would be when he thinks that like, he's not going to be allowed to like finish where he's like, you know, I'm not after it. Di- no, I don't want to, I don't want to be with Daphne. Like, you know, I, I want you, like, I'm here with you. Like, you know, damn, you got me all worked up. Like I'm just <laughs> looking for her. Cause someone wants to know where she is. Like, it's fine. <laughs> it was, and then, like, later on, he goes and sees um, the, the man after Coretta's dead, and he, you know, he has to pretend, 
like that he didn't sleep with this guy's woman, you know? Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he clearly has a past in Houston, which is why he's tangled up with Mouse. Yeah. But, you know, he also, like, believes in the inherent, like, strength of his community. And uh, there's just so much to him as a character. And I wish that this movie had done better and that we had been allowed to, like, see the evolution of this. You know, it was it was 95. I don't know how, like, franchising and series worked back then I was uh, not that old <laughs> and I just think it would be interesting if like every couple of years we were like, Oh, we're going to get a new easy Rollins movie. Like see where this guy goes, like see how he evolves. Cause this is such an origin story and it plays really well as a single film and a single story, but there are clearly things that are left not so much up in the air as like, you know, with an ellipsis that can be filled in in the next, the next mm-hmm. film. I mean, sure. the ending of this film is, as I was saying, it's, it's so bizarre in terms of the, the way that you think it's going to, not necessarily that you're going to get a happy reunion, but even just like a, a smile from Jennifer Beals as, you know, her and Frank Leaf Town or something. Like mm-hmm. you expect you're going to get some gesture or something and instead it just it does the that she was gone the place is empty and now he's sitting on his porch with this guy we met in the first scene and I haven't seen the whole movie yeah <laughs> like it's it's very interesting and and i i think again all of that like that lack of uh catharsis is, is again obviously very intentional and interesting and like I don't know. Uh, that does remind me, though. It, it was interesting looking at reviews from the time. Uh, people thought Jennifer Beals was really flattened at this. And I think she's really – she's a really interesting, like, uh, kind of subversion of our usual femme fatale. Like, you know, even coming down to the costuming. Like, her costume – I love that the blue dress is not this – typical sexy short like it's it's not something that connotes a certain level of um i don't, I don't know like a, like a certain sex appeal that would that would seen as being like taboo mm-hmm. as or scandalous like and so as you keep meeting her character even as you as she does these strange things like literally leave him at this house i really like how like short and even when she like tries to get on his good side she's like bad at it like she's not our typical femme fatale who you know has all of the dialogue at the ready in the chamber sure and it's just waiting for the moment to unload it and just you know ensnare uh easy like Mm -hmm. there's something far more uh yet vulnerable and like like she doesn't have this planned out at all. Like it's no, she's a she's a really woman who who just wants like her her love to work out. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, well, and, um, and and I think one thing that's interesting is that that Franklin apparently cut out a love scene between the two of them. Yep. Um, and the, the other thing to kind of note that's that's really interesting about what's going on in this film and and kind of I, I'm not quite sure 
what her character really is supposed to represent. And that's why it's, it's kind of, she's a, she's kind of a, a, a wild card in this film is that she apparently has this big love affair with, with, uh, Todd Carter and who's the other mayoral candidate that has to drop out because I guess, it was going to get out that that she was basically half black, half white, and that it was going to ruin his reputation and this, that, and other. And so his family basically paid her off to skip town. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, throughout this film, it's made kind of aware in some ways, whether through dialogue or whether through just the looks. Sh- uh, people are giving about her that she's like sleeping around, but it has a predilection for for black men. But it doesn't seem like that's only because of her brother Frank Green, who people don't realize is her actual brother, but you know think that she's just sleeping with him. But it's also like how she comes on to Easy at at one moment. It's also how. Uh, Joppy kind of talks about her in one moment. Um, it's interesting because she she never really like says that she isn't doing some of these things that she kind of has a reputation for. And yet when she goes to meet up with Todd Carter, it's supposed to be this big like romance. And in the back of my head, I was just like, yeah, but she's like sleeping around, isn't she? Like, I don't understand. Well, that's like, the, that's the interesting thing is that, like, as a woman who passes for white, who yeah, still sure. goes and spends time in these black spaces, like, it's hard to know that anything anyone says about her is true. Sure. Um, and that's that's an interesting thing. And one of the things that, again, I I really like about this movie is how all of these things are at once text of the film, but they're so deeply woven in like, this is a movie that really is situated in the right time and place for the story it's telling because it's able to tell it with like a whole level of, and this is crazy to say for a noir film, like naturalism. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to strive or like try to insert these themes because like at that time in that place, this was like the truth. Like there's the, the line when easy says, um, what was it like, you know, was it like I, I nervous, you know, I was like a black man in a white neighborhood with a white woman in my car. I wasn't nervous. Mm-hmm. I was stupid. Like, <laughs> yeah, sure. Yes. Like they, there are things that are going to happen that just by existing in a space, you're putting yourself in danger. And so by being a, a woman who is now passing for white, but who knows that she is half black and therefore like feels welcome in this one section of society that she's not supposed to be in. Like, that comfort Mm. lends itself to all kinds of stuff being said about her. And so, like, you know, and we don't get a lot of information about her background. Clearly, her her half-brother is a a bad man. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, you assume that maybe, like, growing up in that kind of environment, she, too, has the rough past. And so, it's, it's, um, it's a whole thing. Like, but I think that she even outside of like the bad things that she does really does have, have affection for uh, Carter and, and really does believe that like, okay, like now that the threat of blackmail has been 
decimated because we've exposed him, <laughs> then we can be together. And he's like, no, because you don't understand. Like, it wasn't just that one time. Like, you were, you were going to be black, half black for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really, it's really kind of sad. You know, Easy even says it. Like, that's the one line that, like, a person won't cross. You know, mm-hmm. in this city, in this place, at this time, like there's just no way that's going to happen. And so she, she really did all of this stuff. You know, for again, like not for nothing. Like clearly, she had a purpose, but it comes to nothing. Sure, for her yeah. at least. Well, I mean, you know, it comes to a lot of people have died. <laughs> and- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but for Carter, all of her efforts and energies ends up winning him a mayoral candidate yeah but uh but what's crazy about that and what i think is even more interesting is that like he the the candidate who is a self-professed like friend of the Mm african-american is the guy who ends up getting like destroyed because he's a pervert and like that's that's like the choice they had to make like this one guy is super bad for like children he is a morally corrupt human being but this other guy is you know morally broken but in a way that's expected in society and so he gets to win and so we see that newspaper that's like you know housing woes for for i I can't remember the word it uses but basically like the housing situation is going to get worse for african-americans now like Mm -hmm. you know we can only assume that means like more redlining more issues with where they can and can't be and um and Easy's sitting there, but he's got his little patch, and that's what he did all this for. Like he preserved his status quo, and he solved the mystery, and now he has like a clear eye forward because he's like, I think I can make a go at this. Like, yeah, but, first but one didn't go super great, but I got money. <laughs> what's interesting about that is that Easy mentions right from the get go that like a lot of people were putting their name into the political sphere and that he, his only concern was again, paying his mortgage. He didn't, Mm. he didn't care about all of, all of this political stuff. And so it's interesting that because they never even mentioned Democrat or Republican or anything like that. I think about these mayoral candidates, just Mm -hmm. one is a friend of, as he calls it, the Negroes. And then the other is maybe not a rich guy certainly um and so it's it's one of those situations where it's like because easy doesn't really care about like the politics side of it he ends up making life worse for like a lot of his own race and probably himself as well because he got tangled up in this and didn't didn't bother to think like oh what kind of political ramifications does this have just did did the you know did i do the job yes i did the job and am i going to get paid yes and does it feel like justice was kind of served yes Okay, right. and but if you're, now the political ramifications are now your whole race is screwed, though. It's and if like, you're living oh. in a society that that feels like no matter who's at the top, it's always going to be bad for you. Mm-hmm. Then like that doesn't that doesn't really matter because you're like, OK, sure. sure. This guy is like saying he's going to help like, you know, the black man in the city. But like, is Absolutely. he or is yeah. he just pandering for votes? Like, is he going to be any worse than this other guy? And 
I, I, you know, not having read the books, but, you know, if they begin at 48 and they, you know, the most recent one takes place in the 60s, like, I have to imagine that that's a part of it, that it's, you know, you're viewing the arc of history through this character's eyes. And I think, like I said, that Easy is such a, an interesting, complex character, and he's so charismatically played and like well played by Denzel Washington in this film at a point in his career where like, honestly, no one would be surprised by how good he is in this. Uh, the previous years he had done, um, Philadelphia, the Pelican brief crimson tide. And he also did virtuosity. And then he did <laughs> devil in a blue dress, courage under fire and the preacher's wife. I mean, like Jesus. he's like, this is height of his powers. Like he'd already, I think in 92, he had done Malcolm X, you know, it's yeah. It sucks that we didn't get more of these, but this movie only made like seventeen point one million off of a budget of twenty seven. And even um, back then, that was that was going to be hard, especially in ninety five. I think ninety five was just on the cusp of like um, rentals and everything like that really taking off. Mm-hmm. And I don't see, you know, it, it it is interesting because the the cover art is definitely gorgeous at least uh, judging by the one that i'm looking on uh imdb on, no i'm looking on wikipedia oh, okay um and you know that that cover image is definitely something but i don't know if it's necessarily selling this film as much of like you know it's almost selling him as a sexual icon in a way that he was kind of probably uh being marketed at the time um it's hard for me to think of him in that way now uh but you know back then certainly and you know i mean he's a good looking fella but uh that's basically all this film poster is is just him looking sultry with like a woman in the background and it's like what is that selling there is that look i don't know but it's enough for me (laughs) yeah you know it's, it's interesting you know um but I don't know, like, I mean, I think the name itself is a hell of a title. Like, oh, yeah. That's 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 a, such a, a it's such a classic noir title, but it's also just like a beautiful title because it, it says so much about this character that ends up being the focal point of the film that you don't meet until like 30 or 40 minutes into the movie. Right. You know? And, and I think and she kind of lives up to that name in a, in a lot of ways, whether fair or unfair, you know? Yeah. Um, so one of the interesting things that um, when I was listening to Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time, period. Uh, the two hosts were talking with Issa Rae, who is another one of their guests who talked about this film. And she actually, I think, ranked this film as like her number three favorite Denzel performance of all time. Mm-hmm. And I really need to listen to this podcast. <laughs> it's a very good podcast. Um, I really like it, especially because Denzel Washington is in so many good movies mm-hmm, that you always mm-hmm. know you're going to listen to them talk about a good movie. Um, so they were talking about it, and she and and I think they were like a little shocked at how like poorly this movie did. And I don't remember who said it. Um, it was one of the two hosts, and they said like at this time, like this movie straddled this really weird line where it was, it looked like a white person's movie, but it was starring Denzel. So like, it wasn't the type of movie that like in 95, 
like the African-American community felt like they needed to go see and support. And, mm-hmm. you know, as, as popular as, as Denzel was even amongst white audiences, like, I don't, I don't know that they saw this and felt like they needed to either. And it could be just because it's of, of the genre that it is, but there was something about this. And it's kind of what I brought up earlier, where it's like, you are taking this incredibly charismatic and popular black actor and a black writer director and you are saying like we're gonna make a movie that is usually like lily white except for the guy who owns the jazz club (laughs) and we're gonna tell this all like in a black neighborhood with black people like and it's gonna be a black story and so yeah i feel like there it just fell into this like negative zone like this phantom zone that like no one knew what to do with it um which is crazy because, like, again, like, Denzel Washington was in the middle of such a run. Like, such an incredible run. And also this movie, like, just to be, like, the the most, like, I don't know, shallow about it. Like, he's so hot in this movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, he's a good-looking guy. You know? Like, this movie, like... That I, mustache I was, is rocking, for sure. First of all, I, like, anyone who could pull off that that small mustache is just like the the greatest person ever. Um the greatest actor of all time period. But um yeah, I mean like this this movie like he is treated like a sex symbol in this movie. Yes. Like he I when I was when I was writing my notes I said like this is like the type of thing that Brad Pitt would do. Mm-hmm. Like you give him the good outfits but then you also get him to strip down every now and then like sure. you were trading on his 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 innate sexuality. And I don't know that any other films had done that up until this point. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I looked through them and I, I didn't see Mississippi Masala or Mo Betta Blues. But like, I just like this, this movie, like, it just really was like invested in him as well, like a, y- a person you want to look at and follow. It's it's funny. It's funny you mention that he this film was in the middle of a run and that this film is frustrating in that it it just didn't do that well. Um, What's so interesting about that is that's just a reflection of just the nature of this industry in so many ways where you can just look at the perfect storm, you know, lining up all your, your, your ducks or whatever you call it. And, you know, crossing all your T's and being like, okay, well this one should make a ton of money. This one should be a big hit. Like it's got everything going for it. And then you release it and nobody fucking sees it. And it's like, why? And it's like, I don't know why. I don't know why some of these movies are hits. I don't know why some of these movies aren't hits. And because of that, that's why so many, so much money is spent on so many different things that you think should be a hit. And you see it and you're like, wow, that's that's awesome. It's amazing. Why did nobody else see this movie? Yeah. Um, and and that's the weird thing about this profession, about this industry, is that it's a very imperfect system of making great art sometimes. And if you mismarket it or if the market is just not right at the time for it, it just won't hit. And and there's no 
you know, there's a lot of hand wringing about like what that means and whether that is a reflection of the art itself. And I think, I think absolutely not. I think you're just dealing with a free market economy and some things should work and end up just not working. I mean, it may be just simply people were like I mentioned, right? Why I haven't seen the equalizer. Well, because Denzel has been making a shit ton of movies in the past few years and, I had to see all the others and mm-hmm. Equalizer was just low on my list. And so maybe this was just low on some people's list while some of those others were, you know, must sees. So, yeah. And like I said, you know, it's, it's possible that like, uh, you know, 1995, maybe like no one was like Jones and for a noir, mm-hmm. which yeah. is crazy to me, obviously, because like I'm always sure, Jonesing sure. for a noir, but like I, so I just looked up, I wanted to, I, I skipped virtuosity, but I guess I should look at it. I was on box office Mojo and I was like, you know, let's see how he was doing in terms of like the money aspect. And so, uh, for Crimson Tide, he made, uh, or he made the movie made $91 million. Uh, courage under fire uh, was $59 million. And those were on either side of, of this film. Um, now I did Crimson Tide came out before Virtuosity, which was right before Devil in a Blue Dress. Virtuosity made twenty four million dollars on a thirty million budget, which isn't you know disastrous, but not great. <laughs> but again, that's still somehow more than Devil in a Blue Dress. You know, it's it's kind of weird. It's kind of crazy. Like this feels like it should have it should have like played to some of those same those same strengths you know like people I, I don't know how much the pelican brief made but it's a john grisham novel right i mean it probably made a bunch of money and it's just it's it's uh, it's weird to me it's weird and this is probably you know like i just i just read two two different movies that he made a bunch of money off of you know crimson tide and courage under fire but i swear to god there was probably a point where someone said well you know devil in a blue dress didn't make a lot of money so we can't like try to launch this franchise with denzel washington that's and, and almost like, definitely happening yeah <laughs> and like like you were saying bill like that's just like the shittiness of like this particular art form is that it unfortunately like a painter who sells a, a painting for like 20 bucks that still might be enough money to cover costs and like he'll do another painting and maybe like the 14th painting he does, he'll sell for like a million dollars and then he's suddenly celebrated and everything is great. And like, he was never under any threat of like starvation, but like a movie, you know, if you don't make a shit ton of money, then you just don't get to make another one. And if people in particular on the front end, you know, and like I mentioned, you know, this is kind of right around the age of, of the burdening, uh, home video release and everything like that. I mean, VHS was definitely like coming around the bend. And then, uh, I think DVD was probably right around the corner here, probably, you know, 99, two thousands easy for Mm -hmm. sure. But, um, you know, uh, these movies, even today, they have to make all their money in the box office. And so many of these films, if they don't hit, then there's never going to be any kind of commercial appeal to them after that point. Whereas like a book oftentimes can have like a, a resurgence and things like that. But a lot of movies just 
you know, they live and die off of their their box office total. And that's it. That's the only marker of success they, they often end up having, you yeah. know. And so that's why Which, when when you initially said, like, you know, I wasn't sure why we were doing this. Like, it's like I said, that is a that reason. is a very decent <laughs> question, considering that in terms of cultural impact, like, I don't think this movie did a lot because it was uh, a financial failure. So mm-hmm. we didn't get a lot of like, oh, well, what if we told these traditionally white stories but with a black lead? And not in a funny way, like Blazing Saddles, but like in an earnest way that like examines this. And like what if we were able to have like sex symbol complicated like black characters? And instead, you know, we kind of have to be like – we almost have to talk about this like a great missed opportunity. It's like a Absolutely. great missed opportunity for a franchise a great missed opportunity for just a whole like genre and like future of movies that just never came to pass and is only now sort of coming with things like Black Panther and Creed. I mean it's it's still weird that the the idea of like tentpole genre films let alone tentpole period genre films is becoming you know it's almost becoming extinct because it was Mm -hmm. like the mid the mid-level thing i I mean like and even the nice guys isn't the same thing but like that's something i can think of that seemed to you know that could have had maybe not four quadrant appeal three quadrant appeal (laughs) but you know it was that was something that seems like it should have been a bigger hit and you heard that a lot in you know a lot of different sectors in the film community that you expected that'd be bigger. I mean, inherent vice. I, I love that film to death. I don't think, I didn't ever think that was going to be popular, but like, you know, before you even get into conversations about race, it's just, it's fascinating to think about which of these films hit and which don't. And, you know, like even LA confidential, I guess was that 96 or 97. That's 97 because it lost to Titanic. Which is okay. a fact that is burned into my heart forever. <laughs> like it's it's pretty strange that, for instance, that uh, that went on to get awards attention when I think there are a lot of similarities between these two. Like oh, yeah. I, I'm not saying that the, I'm not saying that either does or doesn't deserve it, but rather just it, it's fascinating to think about. You know, Cheadle, for instance, not uh, getting that larger attention and what to make of. You know, I, you know, I, I really don't just want the creeds and black Panthers to be the only opportunity for, you know, a black genre films. And even though you get remakes of things like Superfly and stuff, it, it's right. still I mean, even, I mean, you know, to bring Denzel certain. Washington back into it, like he, uh, he did the Magnificent Seven. Sure. You know, and Fences. That's like, yeah. And, and even Fences, he had to. Well, I was no, going for like genre e things. Like Fences is uh, sure. what August Williams. It's, yeah, it's a it's kind of a film stage play. <laughs> In a, lot a of film ways. stage play. <laughs> hey, hey, that's the name of the show. Um, what I was gonna say, L.A. Confidential made sixty four million dollars. Um, that was a platform Here. release. It looked like it opened in uh seven hundred sixty nine theaters and made five million its opening weekend, and I guess grew along with its uh cache i decided to look up but that film that film also has like a number of people in it there's a lot of this yeah yeah, this film mainly is kind of working off of the cache of 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 washington and and while that is definitely has some cache i think there's there's definitely a reason why a noir with that kind of cast that la confidential has 
hits the way it does and makes the impact of, that it does is I also, partly because it's good, but also partly because it's got a hell of a cast. Yeah, right? there's a lot of hooks to get you in. I think that's, it's also interesting fair. that, and I love LA Confidential. It's it's legitimately one of my all time favorite movies. Uh, Kevin Spacey, you know, <laughs> is just it, like I, I was going to say Kevin Spacey be damned, but then I was like, I don't know sure. if that is the right way to put that. But like, it sucks that he's in it. He's very good in it. But he's clearly a bad man. And um, I, it was you, Michael, the other day I said, like, I just have to wait for Kevin Spacey to die so I can finally buy my Blu-ray of L.A. Confidential. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't want him getting any money from me. I don't yeah. want, like, my fraction of a cent on whatever royalty check he gets. Um, it's, the longer it's in- he doesn't work, the more likely we're able to get another one of those great videos. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, less said about that, the better. Moving on. What I was going to say is LA Confidential is pure pulp. Like, it's mm-hmm. – it has things to say about, like, masculinity and, and all these things. But, like, it doesn't say anything broader about society. It's a deeply cynical movie based off of an even more deeply cynical book. And – I find it interesting that it gets held up as like a great modern day noir film. But like two years earlier, we had an equally great modern noir film uh, that actually like had some shit to say and like some stuff on its mind. Mm-hmm. And again, I just I think it would be interesting to like know where the books go and sure. to see where the movies would have gone. Like, is there a point at which easy's you know go along to get along attitude would be like challenged by the civil rights movement and stuff like you know and if it was is that the type of thing where like the fans would have revolted um well, but that's Brian, something that we'll never get to know novels to read and then then you can tell us <laughs> yeah clearly that's uh, my new podcast uh easy reading <laughs> all right that's pretty good <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> off the top of my head that's not bad um so yeah, uh, I'm looking at my notes. I wanted to see if there's anything that I missed. I've been trying to do notes and research for these uh, classic episodes. I appreciate that, Brian. I appreciate that you appreciate it too. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, Denzel, uh, weirdly for the period and even for today, a pure masculine sex symbol. Denzel oh. sexy, Denzel sexy. <laughs> Goddamn, look at that body. Uh, wrap those arms around me, Denzel. <laughs> I like uh, a. <laughs> what was I going to say? Uh, <sighs> this movie—it's something that we've talked about obliquely and sort of around, but it's interesting to see in a in your classic noir novel, the detective is a dick to almost everyone. Um, I was going to say except for the women he wants to sleep with, but actually, it's more like especially the women he wants to sleep with. Mm-hmm. Um, in this movie, I like that easy like tackles a little bit of cold, a code switching, but he still has that classic noir sense of like integrity and justice that it won't let him switch for long. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I, I gasped out loud. Cause like in the police interrogation, he's like trying to be helpful. You know, he's, he's sort of submissive, but then they push him just like that inch too far. And he like rams the guy into the wall. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's again well, that, just like that, that, that interesting shading. Deserved that. Though. Oh, he deserved like, so he, much more than that. Yeah, <laughs> like like Jesus, man, and and even his partners, like, hey, hey, 
we're getting good information out of this guy. Like, wh- why do you keep hitting him? You know, it's just like, damn it. <laughs> like, lay off of me. Yeah, there was part of me that was like, I wonder if this is a good cop, bad cop thing, or I wonder if the other cop is legitimately just tired of this, the bad cops bullshit. Mm, yeah. It but it's interesting because, like, the cops he knows he has to, like, be helpful with, and, like, he clearly snaps, but then almost immediately he, like, goes into the corner and puts his hands up. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He's really, you know, he's he's super relaxed with his friends as he is, like, at home. But, you know, in that, in the, the, the kind of behind the wall gin joint you know he's just like leaning in his chair got his collar open (laughs) i love that like he completely drops the code switching with albright though because that guy's just a complete crazy piece of shit Mm -hmm. so yeah i I really like like when he steals his whiskey and then he's like oh it's cheap whiskey (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. like such a shitty thing to do (laughs) Yeah, and again, like we we've talked so much about like the the broader societal kind of missed opportunity of this movie, but also what the movie itself is saying about society at that time. But also, like I think it's again, I think that this is just a perfect marriage because it never overwhelms the story, and it's always so intrinsically part of the story that even if you were ignorant to all those things and the way that they they acted in in our you know fairly recent u.s history you'd still be able to get them just by watching this movie and you'd still be able to understand their impact but also it wouldn't feel like the movie had stopped in its tracks just to give you like a lesson yeah which is kind of the thing that i like most want to like end this on is just once again praising this film for being able to be a movie that has a point of view and has something to say about something but that is is just perfectly able to wrap that all around this labyrinthine crazy you know plot that is inherent in all in all noir films mm-hmm. any other I, final thoughts before we uh, wrap up i do uh barry chewbacca henley is the woodcutter is he okay i <laughs> thought he was and then i was yeah, like i recognize his face yeah, I saw that. I was like, is that Barry Shabaka Henley? And then I was going to look it up. And then I was just afraid I'd find Casper Van Dien in there and I would just lose my mind. <laughs> that is a shout out to our Battle Angel Alita, Alita Battle Angel episode. Are you sure you don't mean Jai Courtney? <laughs> I, yeah, it's not Jai Courtney. It's not Casper Van Dien. Uh, and it's not um, that Jack other guy. Yeah, but you 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 still fucking blew my mind when the, when you told me that Grishka is is Jackie Hurley. I was just like, what the fuck are you talking about right now? It's not it's not Jackie Hurley. It's not Jai Courtney. It's not Sam Worthington. It's not Casper Van Dien. Those are all different people. We did Sam Worthington in Battle Angel. All right, we gotta go. <laughs> no, remember I said I thought that that was Sam Worthington, oh, and yes, everyone yes. laughed at me. That's yes. right. That's right. <laughs> And the fact that I'd given up looking for Sam Worthington because I just assumed that I'd seen Casper Van Dien. (laughs) Anyway, let's do our Alita Battle Angel episode with a special guest, Jay Rosenfield, if you haven't already. That's a quirky little movie. Thank you so much for listening to us talk about Devil in a Blue Dress. It's actually for free with limited commercial interruption on Vudu right now. And, of course, you can uh, rent it all over the place for not much money. It's uh, it's definitely worth a look. 
definitely I worth agree. a look. Yeah. Next time on the Classic Reviews, we're going to talk about Crimson Tide. No. <laughs> All right. I guess it's not all on record. <laughs> That's going to be it. That's going to be our, our Denzel triptych. It'll be all sewn up. I okay. really, I, I really, I swear to God, I really want to do Crimson Tide, especially because Bill... Phil bought Hunt for Red October. (laughs) (laughs) That's the craziest goddamn thing. I was like, why did we? I didn't realize we were doing a McTiernan retrospective. (laughs) But you know, two sub movies, sort of the same time ish, and uh, they both involve red or crimson. Makes sense. if we do a McTiernan rec- retrospective, I found out about one of his early movies called Nomads that stars a young Pierce Brosnan uh, facing demon bikers, and oh, the bikers are led by Adam Ant. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yes. So, I really yeah. want to see it. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to wrap up. <laughs> we are going to do Tony Scott's submarine-based thriller crimson tide uh gene hackman denzel washington and a bunch of other characters that we will talk about then and then and then um we're gonna we we're again we still have a backlog that we have to get through for these episodes that we owe you all so don't worry we're gonna do some crazy older stuff probably gonna do sweet movie um and then we've also got some uh some uh, we've got some stuff that's gonna tie into some march releases so keep an eye out um, and again, if you enjoy this, find your local Patreon supporter and thank them, or better yet, become a Patreon supporter yourself by going to patreon.com slash the film stage show, sign up to give as little as $1 an episode. Not only that, but we are of course brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. Sign up for a free 30 day trial now by going to mubi.com slash film stage. You can see Goya's ghosts. You can see queen of earth. If you have literally nothing better to do with your life, you can see The Cove. You can see Hotel Dallas. You can see a movie called Satan High Heels, which is just a great name for a movie. In fact, Devil in a Blue Dress, Satan in High Heels, sounds like the Devil and Satan, who are probably the same person, going out to the movies tonight. So, anyway, mubi.com slash filmstage for a free 30-day trial of movie. Watch it on your phone if you're a monster. Watch it on your PC or laptop. Watch it on your Roku watch it anywhere good times that is it for today the next time you hear from us it will be this weekend and we'll be doing the film stage show awards that's it the stages are back we are tallying up the totals of all the votes received now you can look forward to hearing us hand out those awards drunk going to the liquor store now (laughs) i'll be going tomorrow or friday i'm going to pick up a bottle of whiskey I am going to uh, drink most of it. (laughs) It's going to be great. I mean, I know 2018 was bad, but wow. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you just got to drink a whole bottle of whiskey. Um, I I guess so. So yeah, uh, check that out. That's going to be awesome. We won't have any new review this weekend, I don't think. No. Nope. Yeah, we decided against that because uh, that was coming out really tickled fancy. But as time goes on, we're going to fill in some of the gaps from last year. Not to mention there's a couple of movies that are coming out to streaming services that we want to talk about. So fret not. We're going to take a 
brief break from reviewing films, and then we're going to jump right back in with Crimson Tide, and then we're also going to give you some other stuff. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Guys, let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next episode. Bill Graham. You can find me hunting down trees in your local neighborhood on Twitter <laughs> at CableBFG. You can also find me uh, on the Slack channel hoping that we can get a preferential ballot going so I can see what, what kind of a shit fuck it makes of our uh, top tens. I don't so know. So this is just your way. The preferential ballot that you're pushing <laughs> is just to see how much it changes things versus like a Absolutely. point system. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I thought you I, were just I, like, if the Academy does it as a preferential ballot, so must we. Oh no no no! I, I I'll I'll have to get on Slack and make that abundantly clear that I just want to see if it fucks up the top ten to an, an extent that it's like oh wow this is a terrible system. It's completely like, different. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's a good social experiment. All right, Michael Snydell. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at at Snydell. Uh, where, you know, I don't think I'll be cutting down any trees because I would have a hard time finding some trees around me. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. You're in, you're in Chicago. <laughs> Chicago. You're yep, watching yep. the Bears. Um, ah, Bears. Da Bears. I am Colin Farrell. I am running for Alderman. Uh, so. <laughs> that, was, that was terrible. It was pretty bad. Was um, Colin Farrell. <laughs> See, Michael, it could always be worse. Look on the bright side of life. I am Brian J. Rowan. You can find me on Twitter at Brian J. Rowan. You can find me on Instagram at Brian J. Rowan. You can find me on Letterboxd at Brian J. Rowan. You can find me on Facebook.com slash Brian J. Rowan. You can find me on PUBG at Brian J. Rowan. If you haven't picked up on the pattern yet, I don't know what to do for you. Also, of course, you can find all these episodes on thefilmstage.com as well as writing by us. So do check that out. And ladies and gentlemen, again, thank you so much for joining us. And tune in next time. Like an angel, your smile is divine. But you keep me guessing, will you ever be mine? Devil or angel, please say you'll be mine. <laughs> what, are you, what are you laughing at? I, have you ever heard of Catch That Kid? No. All right, it's a kids movie from 2004. It is a remake of the Danish blockbuster Klata Rosen, okay, which, whose tagline is "the gutsiest girl since Pippi Lockingstocking." <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>